Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Well, welcome back to our study of Romans. We need what? We need, we're going to get individualized desks. That's the request. Ooh, you don't want to be like you're in an airplane, though. You just mean own the part of the airplane that is only the tray table. I'll put in a request. Scott already makes fun of me for being a spoiled brat, so why not request some more things, you know? I got, yeah, I got my big board, so you never know. I mean, you know, the sky's the limit. You don't know until you ask. Asking's free. Okay, welcome back to what is uh, week five of our, uh, of our uh, study here of the book of Romans. We're going to pick up where we left off um, by looking at chapter five. But first, let me say a quick prayer. And then um, just here for a couple minutes up front, I want to give you some time to spend in reflection on a question that I think will prepare us to hear what, uh, what Paul wants us to hear, what God wants us to hear from Romans chapter 5. So let me pray. I'll give you some guidance on the direction and then we'll go. Uh, God, thank you for the opportunity to be here and to proceed in our study. Uh, we pray as always that you would communicate with us through the text. We recognize that this is uh, this is a living book in the sense that you still speak through the same truth that has always been there, and you speak it in fresh ways into our lives, in ways that are consistent with its original meaning and yet uniquely applicable to the things that we are dealing with and thinking through in our own lives and also in the lives of those that we're trying to love and uh, maybe even lead. So we pray tonight that you would um, sharpen our minds, give us energy in that regard, uh, soften our hearts give us wisdom in that regard, and just overall, uh, we pray that this would be just one more uh, meal, so to speak, uh, that you used to build us up, uh, to give us nutrition, and to, um, to strengthen our life. So thanks for the opportunity together and study. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I want you to begin by um, reflecting on this question, and you're welcome to do so in your head if that's kind of how you best think, but I invite you to actually put pen to paper um, if, um, if you're able to do that. And the question is, do you ever doubt that you will actually be saved? Or do you ever doubt that we, as Christians, will actually be saved? So you can ask it in the sort of theoretical of us as a group, or the kind of more personal, uh, do you yourself sometimes think, I don't know if, if I'm okay. Do you ever doubt that you or we will actually be saved and why? So that's the question um, or kind of set of questions that I want to give you a, a couple of minutes here up front to think through. And uh, after some, some time for you to think through that, I'll get your attention and we'll continue our conversation.
Okay, so let me get your attention back um, up here. Uh, this time, I'm, I'm not going to uh, ask any of you to share in particular. Um, I, I want you to think on those things, and, and we're going to leave that, as we say sometimes, between you and the Lord, which may be a cheesy way to talk, but uh, it's what I mean. That I want to be something that you think about with Jesus as he teaches you tonight, because I believe that in certain ways what we're going to study tonight is designed um, to answer many questions. One of them is this question that we at times find ourselves wrestling with. How, how can I know that I'm okay? Like, how, how is it that I can put my head uh, on the pillow at the end of the day and not worry about what would happen if I didn't wake up in the morning and so on and so forth? So we are turning a corner to the second major section of Romans. Uh, remember, I've suggested to you that generally speaking, you could divide Romans out into four sections. The first one is one through four. I'm going to do a little, a little uh, um, review of that here in just a second. Then the next three are five through eight the section that we're going to begin looking at tonight. Then 9 through 11, um, which is kind of one continuous uh, argument, if you will. And then 12 through 16, uh, which is kind of the practical outworking. So in 5 through 8, Paul is going to be exploring the truth that he's unpacked for us. In 9 through 11, he is answering a critical question that is raised by what he has said so far. And then in 12 through 16, he is instructing, giving us practical guidelines on how to live. But here in 1 through 4, what we've seen so far is that Paul is explaining to us uh, what God is doing. So let's look back at what we've seen, just so that we can get a running start in chapter 5. Put simply, a couple of the main points of chapter 1 through 4 are that God has demonstrated his righteousness through Christ's faithfulness. What does that mean? Well, we've looked at the fact that essentially what Paul is unpacking is, uh, is that God is saves all sinners by grace through faith. That's kind of the, 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 the personal truth that is explained and opened up for us in chapters 1 through 4 of Romans. God saves all sinners, whether Jew or Gentile. He saves them the same way, by grace through faith. And he explains this, though, as God's righteousness. His point is not just this is how you are saved. His point is that in saving you this way, God demonstrates his own righteousness. That in saving all sinners by grace through faith, he demonstrates what Paul calls righteousness. Now, we've understood that God's righteousness means fundamentally two things. His integrity as judge, he's going to reward the good and punish the evil, and his faithfulness to his promises that he made to Israel when he made a covenant with um, Abraham and then renewed it, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, so on and so forth. And what we've seen is that the way in which God demonstrates his righteousness is in the cross of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus uh, as, as, as a sacrifice that pays the penalty for our sins. The death of Jesus as the Messiah who kind of represents the people who belong to him. And that in the death of Jesus, which Paul characterizes in chapter 3 as the faithfulness of Christ, the faithfulness of the Messiah, that in this we see God's whole plan reaching its intended fulfillment. So God has demonstrated his righteousness by saving us through Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of chapters 1 through 4. And secondly, the password, if you will, for accessing this, the password for becoming part of God's saved family is simply faith. We don't enter into this family and access salvation by becoming uh, Jew Jews who submit to the Old Testament law. We don't uh, gain access into this family by living up to a list of rules. No, we gain access to this family merely by entrusting ourselves to Jesus, by saying, I'm going to trust that his death counts for my sin. 
the death I deserve, he actually experienced it so that I don't have to deserve it. I flunked the test, he got an A, I was given the opportunity to let his A count for my F, and I said yes. That's how we get in. That's the badge of membership in God's family. And as a result of this entrusting myself to him in this way, there's this connected piece where I have now given my life over to him. That's how we become part of the family. So again, to put it simply, God saves all sinners by grace through faith in the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Now he's going to turn a corner. In this next section, he has explained to us the gospel. And if, if you tire of long arguments, then you probably have tired at certain parts of chapters 1 through 4. Because it is a long argument. So he's still going to be laying out a case. But in this next section, he kind of does a little bit more what I call exploring. He's still laying out his reasons for why we should believe what he's saying, but ultimately he's taking some of these realities of what's been made available to us and he's exploring it. So let me give you three statements that help us understand what Romans 5 through 8 is all about. First of all, he is exploring all that is now available to those who say yes to Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's saying, so you've said yes to Jesus by faith. You're part of the family. Let's talk about what it means to be part of this family. Let's talk about the benefits that you receive as an adopted member of the family of God. So that's the first thing that he's doing. And this is going to be important for us because to the extent that we're ignorant of what God has made available to us in the gospel, we're not going to live into it. I remember hearing a, ta- hearing a story, uh, it's a sad story, but it was the reality at the time of um, some slaves who, who were released as a result of the Emancipation Proclamation and who were told to go enjoy your freedom. And their answer was, I have no idea what that means. And so they had to be taught what it means to be a free person uh, so that they could live into these benefits that had made, been made available to them. Similarly, what Paul's saying in chapters 5 through 8 is, I want you to know what you get to have. And he first talks about how we get to have peace with God through the grace that he's provided. We'll talk about that some today. And then he spends a few chapters laying out this freedom that's been made available to us. And then in chapter 8, he just goes off, and we'll talk about that when we get there. So Paul's exploring all that is now available to those who say yes to Jesus. I want you to hear Romans 5 through 8 to you personally. This is what's available to you. Secondly, he is still showing how God's purposes and promises are fulfilled in Christ. We haven't stopped demonstrating God's righteousness. We haven't stopped demonstrating God's faithfulness to his promises because these things that are made available to us are the things that God always promised would be available to his people. So we see in this the fulfillment of his promises to Israel. And if you stretch even further back, the things that are made available to us are always what he purposed for humanity in the first place. He made people to have an ex- a relationship with him that's characterized by peace and harmony because of grace. He made people to live in freedom from the fear of death and freedom from sin and freedom from law. He made people to live in such ways that he's about to describe. So when he calls us to live like this and tells us that this is available to us, this sort of undertext, this, this side message that he's communicating the whole time is, you get to live this and this is proof that he's doing what he said he was going to do. So that's the second thing he's doing. And then lastly, it seems to me in this section in various ways, he places extra emphasis on the security of salvation in Christ. If you prefer, you can put stability or assurance. Call it what you want. His point in here is that he wants you to know you're saved. And he wants you to know that you can know you're saved. 
He wants you to wake up and to go to bed without the fear that maybe I screwed up a little bit too much today or maybe I didn't read my Bible enough or maybe I didn't pray enough or maybe I wasn't nice enough. He wants you to live without the fear and the pressure of feeling like you're just on the verge of missing out. Because if you live with fear of the pressure on the verge of missing out, then ultimately you can't have a life that's characterized by peace and freedom and joy. He wants you to know, like, no, you're saved. So now live into this thing that's been made available to you. So that's the big picture of Romans 5 through 8. We're going to look a little bit at two sections tonight. I'm going to go over briefly the first 11 verses. And I say briefly because I had a chance to preach a sermon on this a few weeks ago. And uh, hopefully you were there. If you haven't, please go listen to that sermon. I consider it not just just because it was me who sang it, but I consider the truth that I got to unpack in that sermon perhaps one of the most critical truths that you and I could hear. And we're going to review it a little bit today, but I'm not going to go into great detail because I don't need to cover the same ground again and because I want to spend the majority of our time looking at the second half of Romans chapter 5, which we haven't touched at all on the weekends. So uh, let's first look at Romans 5, 1 through 11. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Romans uh, chapter 5, or you can tune your devices or however it is you take in the Scripture. And let me read to you what Paul writes. So starting in verse 1, I'm just going to go ahead and read the first 11 verses. Are your seatbelts buckled? Because Paul, in both of these sections, just kind of goes off. I'll try not to read it too fast. Here's what he says. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? And not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read Romans 5, 1 through 11, I think to myself, cool, I think you lost me at like the third word. Because I started thinking about that one, and I couldn't get any further. And then when I locked back in, I heard about three more words, and then I got lost in that one. I mean, it's loaded. And it's loaded for a couple of reasons. Uh, For one thing, Paul is worshiping. I mean, this is the point in, in, in the sermon when the preacher just gets really excited and just starts, just starts spitting out words. I mean, he's just going. I still think he's choosing his words very carefully because it's Paul. But I mean, he is excited and he's probably at this point spitting on whoever is in front of him. This is one of those moments when I picture Paul just saliva going everywhere, you know. Uh, he's just intense, right? So Paul's just worshiping. He's going off. That's part of why it feels so loaded. But also it feels loaded because this text functions kind of like a hinge that allows a door to swing both ways. And what I mean by that is Paul in this 11 verses is summarizing what he's been saying so far in the first four chapters and he's previewing what he's going to talk about in the next four chapters. So he's kind of saying, uh, okay, here's where we've come from, here's where we've headed. 
So he's not really trying to develop his thoughts in great detail. He's just throwing a bunch of stuff out there. Some of which he wants us to get because we've studied it. Other parts of which we're not supposed to get yet because he's about to unpack it. So that's a part of the reason why I'm kind of okay taking something of an overview of this text. So let's do just that and walk through some of the relevant details. And what you're seeing in here is basically the blessings of justification by faith. He starts by saying, therefore, since we're justified through faith, and then he starts listing out the things that are made available to us because we're justified by faith. Because we're declared righteous merely by saying, I want, his, I want his death to count for mine. I want his grade to count for mine. Okay, you now have an A. It is official. We've been justified simply by faith. And here's the blessings of that. First of all, he says peace. This is the first couple of verses. Because we're justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, how would a Roman have heard this? Well, peace for a Roman was kind of a big deal. You ever heard of the Pax Romana? Peace for a Roman was a word that represented the world put right with everything in its proper place and us having taxes we can afford and crops that produce um, vegetables and a family that cares for us and business that is thriving. In the first century world, peace was a big deal to the Romans. Uh, Peace was also a big deal to the Jews. Do you know what they would have thought of when you say peace? Shalom. A similar concept. That for the Hebrews, for the Israelites, for the Jews represents, again, a world put right, a world back in its place. And for the Jews specifically, it was a world where things are in their proper place because the core relationship holding the world together, the one between God and humanity, is characterized by harmony rather than hostility. That's what they would have thought of when you have peace. So both of them would have thought about this as this relationship with God or with, in the Romans case, the gods, this relationship with the deity that is characterized by friendship and therefore a world in which things are in their proper place. So he says we have, we have peace with God and we have it through the Lord Jesus Christ because of the grace in which we now stand. And the way Paul says that, the grace in which we now stand, is in multiple ways designed to say to us, like, this is now where we are. Even the verb tense that Paul uses is a way of saying, as a result of past action, this is where we find ourselves. Grace is not just a moment in our lives. Grace is a place in which we exist for the rest of our lives. Grace is a status that we now receive. Grace is, is, is a location where we've taken up residence. We now live in grace, wherever we are. We stand in it, we dwell in it, we are in it. So because of the grace that is always surrounding us, because of the fact that God never stops doing to us much better than we deserve, uh, because of grace we have peace. So peace is the first blessing of justification. Second one is hope. It says in the next couple of verses, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Uh, not only so, but we also uh, glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Hope. Well, what is hope? Well, simply put, hope is having, a, having confidence about the future. Hope means that you have reasons to believe that something good is on the way. That's what we mean when we say hope. And when we say, I hope so, what we're saying is, I would like to have confidence that something good is on the way. So what Paul says here is that we can have a confident expectation about the future, Hope tells us that good things are coming to us. And hope gives us perspective, even on our suffering. 
Paul says that we are even able to rejoice in our sufferings because since we have hope that something better is on the way, we now can look at our sufferings in light of eternity and as a result, we can recognize that this isn't the last word about our existence, that we will live forever in God's perfect world. And as a result of this, we now see our current sufferings as something that builds in us this perseverance, this endurance. So hope gives us this perspective that enables us to see our, our sufferings in an entirely new light. Think of it like this, um, uh, and, and this is my favorite way to think about it. Hopefully it'll be helpful to you. Uh, do you, you ever re- are you a person who reads to the end of a story? Or you know people who read to the end of the story? Yeah. Why do you read to the end of the story? Because you want to know how the story turns out. Because if you know how the story turns out, then you can experience the middle chapters with a little bit more joy, with a little bit less anxiety. You know what I mean? If it's a happy ending, you at least know, I don't know how we're going to get there, but we're going to get there. You ever heard of somebody who reads to the middle? I don't know what this book is about. I think, what's the middle chapter? There's 30 chapters. I'm going to turn to chapter 14 because that's going to give me a sense of what the story is about. No, nobody reads to the middle because the middle wouldn't be helpful in telling you what the story is actually all about. And Paul's saying, if, if you read the middle, you're probably going to be confused. We actually know the end of the story. We know that there's a happy ending, and therefore, we're able to look at these middle chapters, which are sometimes pretty difficult. Can I get an amen? Sometimes pretty difficult. We can look at them from the perspective of the end. That's what Paul is saying. So hope is a blessing of justification. Hope is confident expectation in a good future. Hope gives us perspective. And then he also adds, for good measure, hope builds our character. It turns us into certain kind of people. You've met people who are incapable of, of, of hardship. They're, they're not the kind of people that you can count on. And you've met people who have been through a lot and come out the other side. You know there's something about them that is strong and stable and trustworthy. And Paul's saying, we actually are becoming strong and stable and trustworthy people because we have this perspective that enables us to suffer well. And then in what I think is just fascinating, character takes us back to hope. So he's saying we're part of this good cycle, not bad cycle, this, this, what's the opposite of vicious? I don't know what the opposite of a vicious cycle is, but that's what this is. Hope gives us uh, perseverance, which gives us character, which builds our hope. And it's this continuous pattern of us becoming who we want to be. So Paul is saying, because uh, we're justified by faith, we have hope. But he doesn't just stop there. He goes on to say, how do you know if this hope is something that you could count on? Well, because we also have, as a blessing of justification, love. It's not just hope, but it's a hope that is uh, confirmed for us by love. And then he says, look at what he says first. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our, our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So how do we know hope is stable? Because the Holy Spirit pours God's love into our hearts. Because there are times when we just sort of all of a sudden realize, huh, have you ever, this ever happened to you where you realize, huh, like I really believe God loves me. You know, I just like, I actually believe that. This has been poured into my heart. And it doesn't always feel this way, but um, one time, I'll never forget this because it was one of the coolest moments of my life. Um, one time we had some friends come over and uh, they got out of their car. It was springtime or summertime, so it was warm. We were outside. They got out of their car and they were walking up to our house. And my little daughter, Claire, I think she was four at the time, uh, she, she walks up to them and she just says to them, my name is Claire and my daddy loves me. <laughs> yeah, I love that, right? Like major win. She doesn't always, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, there are times when, anyway, you get it. I'm not a perfect dad. <laughs> But like, I love that, that like, that's just, that's just for her. It's like, yeah, like that's just, that's just what, that's the truth about the world. We 
we believe that God loves us. There are times when we doubt it, but there are also times when we just feel this, this great love that we find it difficult to explain. So Paul says this love um, is poured out into our hearts. Now this is cool, but it's admittedly a bit subjective. What if you don't enjoy wonderful feelings of love in your heart? I know for me there are times when that's not the case. And I'd imagine some of you out there going, okay, so I don't feel it. Does that mean I'm not in? Well, thankfully, Paul doesn't stop with the part that's experiential. He moves on to the part that's true whether you feel it or not. When he says next, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So we are two things, powerless and ungodly, weak and bad. When we were weak and bad, Christ died for us. Now, sometimes somebody will die for a righteous person, you know, someone who's demonstrated that they're, they're just at the top of the list. Uh, no, he actually says very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, a person who's just really spiritual and religious. But sometimes people will die for a good person. They're just, they're just a good person. I would die for you. They're like, you're cool. I'm I, I, I willing to do that. You're good. But he says, nobody's going to die for somebody who's lame. And yet Christ it, it died for us when we were still sinners. And that's how we know that God loves us. So he says, not only is there there's this feeling of love, but there's actually a true story that's the centerpiece of human history that tells us that God loves us. And if he loved you when you were bad and weak, then there's nothing you can do to lose the love because it came to you at a place when you were a loser. You know what I mean? So Paul is saying here in this case that we have, uh, first of all, peace, but not just peace now. We have hope for the future. How do we know that this hope is real? Because we have this love that has been demonstrated for us. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, we also have uh, the salvation that's coming to us in the future. Let me read these verses to you. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So Paul says, since we know that we've been accepted now by grace through faith, we know that we will be accepted throughout eternity by grace through faith. Since this declaration of righteousness, this justifying has been spoken over me now, apart from my own goodness, I can be confident that at the final judgment, I will receive a a favorable verdict, salvation in the future. Then the last one, let me read it quickly and I'll tell you how to pull it all together, reconciliation in the present. And not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Eternity is going to be awesome, but the truth of the gospel is that eternity begins right now. Eternal is not just a a certain quantity of life, like you get to live forever. Eternity is a quality of life, that there is something now being made available to you in Christ that you yourself are experiencing. And the initial mark is that in our relationship with God, hostility has been replaced by harmony. Conflict has been overcome by reconciliation. Now, some of you probably already detected the pattern, and I do think that there is a pattern to what Paul is saying here. He st- I don't think it's just a list of five things. He starts with peace. Then he says hope. Then he says love. Then he says salvation in the future. And then he says you're going to have a relationship that's based on reconciliation right now. Do you notice how this parallelism works? So the peace that he starts with corresponds to the peaceful relationship that we enjoy right now. And the hope that we have in Christ corresponds to the future salvation that is secure. And it's all set on fire by the love that was demonstrated when Jesus died on the cross. This all fits together. And Paul's point in this is that we can have a peaceful relationship with God right now. 
and the hope of salvation throughout all eternity because in Christ we see God's love. Those are the blessings of justification, which just once more raises the question, what is justification? So if this is what's been made available to us, picture an advertiser saying, all this can be yours if, what follows the if? Because as much as I think Paul wants us to be aware of what he's saying is available to us, his emphasis is actually not even that we know all of the specifics here. He'll unpack all this as we go. What he wants us to remember right now is what follows the if. All this can be yours if. And as a matter of fact, if is not the right word. Paul is not saying if you earn it through your good behavior. He's saying all this can be yours since you are justified by grace through faith. Why is Paul talking about justification again? Because I need to hear it again, and you do too. Why is Paul saying the same thing that he's been saying? Because our tendency will always be to think that at a certain point, the game changes, and now I have to earn his love. Because there's always going to be a sense in which we're tempted to define our relationship with him on the basis of my moral perfection. Because there's always going to be this temptation to define myself by what somebody else thinks of me instead of what God thinks of me. We remember what we learned about justification. That it means that God has declared us righteous. And we remember that that means he has said for all to hear that I'm right with him and that you can know I'm right with him by faith. Remember what was going on on the ground in first century Rome. You have a church made up of different kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles trying to figure out how to do life together. And they're asking all sorts of questions, like what does God want from us? How do I know I'm right with God? Because you're telling me one thing, you're telling me another thing, and I think a third. And how do I know you're right with God? And justification is the answer to both questions. I can know I'm right with God because he's declared me righteous by grace through faith. And I can know you're right with God. Not because you keep the same calendar as I do. Not because you don't eat the foods I avoid. Not because you meet the same standards that I grew up with, but because you too are telling me that you have entrusted yourself to Jesus and let his death count for yours. So what that means in first century Rome was Jews stopped judging the Gentiles and Gentiles stopped judging the Jews because God has made you right with himself on the basis of his son. And what that means in 21st century Joplin is something very similar. Let me remind you of how I articulated it in the sermon. I think there are two things Two, thi- two, what would be the, I don't know what would be the word, anchors, if you will, two moorings that are going to keep the ship from sailing away. First of all, I think justification is about letting God's opinion of you define you. We try to justify ourselves in all sorts of ways. And I don't know, I don't know, you know, what part of popular culture y'all pay attention to. Uh, how many of you know the name Ronda Rousey? If I say Ronda Rousey, do you have any idea what I'm talking about? A quarter of the room. Well, she's like this um, currently popular uh, mixed martial arts fighter. She's a female fighter, essentially. And she's like by far the greatest fighter in the history of female fighting. She had never lost. She was undefeated. I mean, she was, they were talking about how she could defeat all the guys, right? And then she lost not too long ago. And about a week or two ago, she appeared on Ellen and then recently did an article with ESPN and she acknowledged that after that loss, she considered taking her life. And you should go read the transcript of the interview because she says things like, I just figured, what am I if I'm not this? She's trying to justify herself by meeting some standard that she's determined. And I'm sure very few of us in the room are worried about our perfect record when it comes to fighting. (laughs) But we are worried about measuring up uh, by producing, by knowing, by winning, by going down the list. 
And so what Paul says, first of all, is you gotta let God's opinion of you define you. But even after you do that, that's actually only half the battle. Once you do that, then you're more prone to legalism than you ever were before. And this is why the second staple, the second mooring, the second anchor for justification is critical, that you let Christ's death define God's opinion of you. That God's opinion of me defines me, therefore what he thinks of me tells me who I am. And that Christ's death is actually what defines what he thinks of me. So that when he looks down at me, what he actually sees is me through Jesus. And what's true of Jesus in his eyes is now true of me in his eyes. That's crazy. That's the gospel. And Paul wants you to know that you know how you can go to bed at night knowing that you're saved? It's not because you think through your day and look at all the wonderful things that you've done. It's that Jesus died for you. He died for all the sins that you committed today 2,000 years ago. Like he was not unaware of the sins that you were going to commit today. So it wasn't like he, he died for all of the sins that you committed up till this morning. But starting today, you were on your own. No, like anybody sin today in any way? You don't have to raise your hand. Anybody sin though? Like those sins, guess what? They're part of what Jesus died for when he died on the cross. Therefore, his death is still what divines uh, what God sees when he looks at you. So that is Romans 1 through 11. Again, fairly quickly, in part because it's a section that it's okay to overview, and also because um, I was, uh, we had a sermon on it not too long ago. So let me pause, though, before we look at this next section. Uh, I want to pause to just let some of you breathe, stretch, get the blood flowing, and also let you uh, think for a moment and see if you have any questions about uh, this section of Scripture before we move on from it. Any questions? By the way, as you're thinking, apparently I was a little loopy last week. At least that's what, first of all, my wife told me, and then Sam told me. Both of them separately came up to me and like, you were, you were a little Jack Sparrow-ish, so I'm going to I'm try to keep it contained today. I'm not going to accuse any of you of asking me if, I'm not going to assume that any of you are going to ask me if Elvis is going to be in heaven. That was last week. So we're going to avoid such things. Be serious. So, any questions about Romans 5, 1 through 11? All right. Oh, yes. Okay, so the point that you made regarding chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, mm-hmm. I think what he's saying is not so much you can't lose your salvation, but first of all, God... Oh, good, good, thank you. Oh, good. I, somebody was saying to me, good job repeating the questions on the podcast. I'm like, I got people who were telling me I should. So the question was, I suggested that in uh, 9 and 10 that Paul is saying, uh, on the basis of the salvation you receive now, you can be sure that you'll have salvation in the future. Is Paul teaching that we can't lose our salvation? And the answer, I think, ultimately is no. Here's what he's saying, though, two things. One, he's saying, um, God's not going to back out on you. So you don't have to fear that somehow he's going to change the game on you. And secondly, he's saying, as long as you continue trusting Jesus, um, then you're going to be okay. Now, to, to, to trust Jesus actually does impact the way in which you live. So if a person is saying, oh yeah, I don't actually even care anything at all about how I live my life, not even one bit, but yeah, I mean, I believe that it counts for me. Honestly, even then his grace might be radical enough. But I think what Paul is picturing is a person who's saying, I, I, I'm, I, I've never been perfect and I know I'm still not perfect. I'm entrusting my life to him as best I can today and I'll do the same tomorrow with my limited weak capacities. Um, and ultimately though, I'm not putting 
uh, my stock in how well I do, but in the fact that he died for me. So unless we move away from the gospel, that's the only way we lose our salvation, is if we directly and intentionally say, I don't want the gospel anymore. I think that is, uh, that is still a possibility for us. And elsewhere, Paul will encourage us to stay the course, which I think assumes that we can veer off course. But his point here, and he'll do this a lot in Romans, he's saying um, what Paul will do often is he'll look at the relationship between us and God uh, from various perspectives. And so, for instance, when he says that the gospel applies to all who believe, he's looking at it from the, from the so if this, if this is us and this is God, and they're, they're right here, there's the relationship. When he says for all who believe, he's looking at it from this angle, standing behind the person saying, if you stay where you are, like you're going to continue, you're going to be saved. If you, if you stay there, if you believe in him, if you trust in him, then you're going to be saved. Whereas Paul will sometimes look at the relationship from over here and he'll say, it's a done deal. And his point is not, forget about what I said about needing faith. His point is, if I'm looking at it from, 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 from the God angle, he's not, he's not going to change the game on you. He's not going to go anywhere. So what Paul is saying here is because you can trust that God justified you by grace through faith now, you can believe that those are still uh, the terms, the terms, the rules of the game, the terms of the, of the system at the end. Good question. I appreciate that. Yeah. Good. All right. So let's look at Romans five twelve through 21. <laughs> Fair warning. If you thought 1 through 11 was jam-packed, 12 through 21... Um, I, I, I debated on telling you this. I'm going to go ahead and tell you this. So here are what some of the scholars say about Romans 5, 12 through 21. Uh, one of my favorites, N.T. Wright, says, trying to read the Greek of 5, 12 through 21 after the measured sentences of 5, 1 through 11 is like turning from Rembrandt to Picasso. <laughs> awesome. Um, Frank Matera, another one, says, what follows is one of the most confusing passages in Scripture. And uh, Ben Witherington says, here we are dealing with some of the most difficult material in all of Romans in terms of grammar and interpretation. <laughs> now, I debated telling you that, but I want to tell you that for a couple reasons. One, I want to be honest. Two, I actually think you can get it. it, it I, I really believe this. I think that if you back up and understand a couple things about what Paul's doing, I'm not going to say that every puzzle piece is going to perfectly fit automatically, but I am quite confident that you can get the big picture of what Paul is doing. And I think it will be, inc- I, I hope at least I can show that it is incredibly relevant for literally every moment of your life. I think that you in some ways find the secret to marriage in Romans 5, 12 through 21. And not just marriage, but every other relationship in which you're called upon to love a person. Risk, love. So let's look at what he's saying and then I'll explain how to get there. Uh, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? My word, and we're not even done. Let's keep going. Consequently, Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, 
so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, let's talk about what Paul is doing in this case. The pressure's off, because if those guys are saying it's confusing, then we don't have to feel like we should understand every little tiny piece. But like I said, I think you can get the big picture. Now, at the largest level, at the most general level, what is Paul doing? He's comparing Adam and Jesus. So you got Adam on the one hand and Jesus on the other. Let's compare them and see what we find. And what turns out is part of why it's so convoluted is he starts talking. He's about to make his point and he's like, oh, wait, but before I finish my point, I got to tell you this. I know I got to tell you this as well. Now back to my point. Oh, but also this. And he's saying, so let's compare Adam and Jesus, but also you got to think about the law. And by the way, they don't really compare, but let's compare them. But, but remember, they don't fully compare. Here's what he's saying. Um, generally speaking, he is comparing the negative effects of Adam's sin with the positive impact of Jesus' death. Let me say that again. Because even if you wouldn't have worded it that way, I would imagine if you read this a few times, you would say, all right, I don't really know what's going on in the details, but I can kind of tell that we're comparing two things. Adam's sin and its negative effects over here and uh, Jesus' death and its positive impact over here. Those are the things that we're comparing. And what Paul does, uh, in a way, is it's almost like he, he, he takes these two categories of Adam and Jesus. And it's like, uh, you've probably seen a teacher do this in some settings. I'm going to write Adam over here on this side of the board. I'm going to write Jesus over here. And then sort of cut the board in half. And then he just throws all sorts of words on, on either half. So he over here on the Adam side, you have condemnation. You have death. You have sin. You have all these negative words. Over here on the Jesus side, you have life and righteousness and obedience and justification. So the many words and concepts, generally speaking, fit into two groups, the Adam group and the Jesus group. So at either point, you're saying something about what's going on in Adam or what went on in Adam and what's happened in Jesus. And essentially the point is what Adam messed up, Jesus more than fixed. Let me give you a couple other ways of thinking about the same thing. Because this will illustrate, I think, the critical truth that he's trying to get across. Let me put it this way. Adam's sin left a huge hole. So picture that for a second. Big hole. Jesus' death more than filled it. Let me give you another one. Adam's death uh, uh, created a deep wound. G- or Adam's sin. Excuse me, I knew I messed that up. Adam's sin created a deep wound. Jesus' death more than healed it. So Adam caused us to be cut. Jesus did more than just bandage the cut. Uh, And one more. Adam's sin tore the fabric of the universe, ripped it in half. Jesus' death more than mended it. That's That's Paul's point. Like Adam jacked things up. And Jesus not only put things back together, but made things even better than they had been before they were jacked up. So let's dig a little bit into what Paul says about both halves of this. The effects of Adam's sin and then the impact of Jesus' death. Looking at the effects of Adam's sin, I want to draw your attention back to the first verse. 
where it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, and then my translation says, because all sinned. I'm going to mess with that in a bit. So what Paul is saying here is sin leads to death, which leads to more sin. What Paul wants us to understand is that there is a way in which uh, certainly sin leads to death. We kind of all believe that because if you've read Genesis 1, you know that Adam was told and, you know, and Eve don't eat the fruit or you will die and they sinned and as a result, death. But what I'm convinced Paul is also saying here is that death actually leads back to more sin. Now, part of this, I'm going to give you kind of a technical thing here, and then we're going to, we're going to back up and look at how this is rooted in real life. Um, this is one of those places where grammar matters. Now, I try not to get into to too many of the gory details with you because we're not trying to be like super scholarly in here. That's actually not our purpose, and it doesn't need to be. But there are some times when uh, it, ma- it makes a pretty big difference in terms of how you understand some of these things. And I'll try to be careful and not nerd out because I don't necessarily have any interest in ever getting a PhD. But if I did today, this would be one of two things I might write on. Because I think actually this verse is fairly simple, even though it's often been misunderstood. So the second half of 512 is what I'm talking about. It says uh, that death came, uh, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people. And my Bible says, because all sinned. That phrase, because all sinned, is the phrase in question. And it's been taken in three basic ways throughout church history. Let me do a time check and make sure that I'm okay on time. I think I probably am. So one way in which it was read for a while is instead of saying because, uh, because of the, in the Latin translations, instead of saying because, it said in whom all sinned. If you've ever heard the name Augustine, this was his reading. And his argument was that what uh, Paul is saying is that in Adam, everybody sinned. Uh, basically nobody believes that that's what Paul was saying anymore because it was a problem with the Latin translation. So we can write that one off. Most English translations and a lot of scholars will take it the way my Bible says it, because all sinned. But that's actually not the most natural way to take the grammar. The most natural way to understand what Paul is saying is to say that death came to all people because of which all sinned. That's what the phrase actually means. There are two words that follow. The first one means because, the other one means of which. And I don't understand why for a long time we just haven't given it the simplest translation. I think it was because people sort of, for whatever reason, couldn't make sense of what Paul was meaning, so they just assumed he had to be saying something else. (laughs) He's saying precisely what he says, that death came to all people because because of which he sinned. Now I think that our failure to see this has resulted in our failure to understand that what Paul says here is actually quite psychologically sensible. That at this point, what Paul is saying to us is this is how human, humanity works. This is a realistic description of how you and I actually operate on a regular basis. So remember, the basic idea is that sin and death are a cycle. That we sin, therefore we experience death, therefore we sin more. What I want to try to do in bringing this to real life is try to make sense of what this actually looks like on the ground. So what I think Paul is saying when he says that it's death is actually the reason why we sin. You start with death. So we start with death over here, and the goal is going to be to understand how it can be true that in some way death gets us to sin. 
another verse that's really helpful in this regard is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. You can write down that reference, which says that Jesus shared in our humanity, he shared in our flesh and blood, so that he could free those who were held in slavery by their fear of death. So death is something that we all recognize is, is a threat to us. ultimately, like, we all know we're going to die, and I actually know that I'm vulnerable to die any moment. I'm fully aware of the fact that there's any number of things a lot of you in this room could do right now that would take my life. So because of death, and we might specifically say the fear of death, this leads us uh, to try to uh, do something about this problem. So let me use some terms that come from outside of the text to help you uh, understand what I think precisely Paul is saying in the text. So um, some different uh, psychologists and sociologists talk about death anxiety. That's how they describe this. We are um, led to a place of fear because we recognize that we're vulnerable, that we can't live forever and that there's all sorts of things that could take our lives. Now in societies that are fairly undeveloped, this, uh, this manifests itself in what's typically called basic anxiety. So picture... Um, the sort of stereotypical tribe in the ancient world, right? Where they don't have access to modern medicine, they don't have means of travel and transportation. Like death is a very real threat every single day. And as a result, when death is a very real threat and you're afraid, you don't want to die, you have this basic anxiety, your primary um, uh, purpose becomes to maintain survival. So like I know that I could die at any particular moment. And this causes in me anxiety, and therefore, because I'm afraid of death and I don't want to die, I'm going to prioritize survival. But what happens when one tribe prioritizes survival? Well, to make, to, to, to make a long story short, essentially what typically results from this is some sort of violence or greed, or generally speaking, a self-centeredness, a selfishness that results in me. I mean, what do we say all the time? It's a dog-eat-dog world. This is what I'm talking about. So in the ancient, again, think about sort of undeveloped societies. Why is it that two tribes, which from the outside looking in, look exactly the same? Why are they fighting? Well, because they recognize the fact that at any particular moment, the other tribe could take us out. And so how can we prevent them from taking us out? Well, we can take them out. You follow the logic of what I'm saying? Nod your head if you follow what I'm saying, generally speaking. Yeah, I see there's some bobbing heads. I appreciate that. So we know, we, we know we're at risk of dying. And as a result of this feeling of fear, we prioritize survival, which leads us to various forms of selfish behavior. Now, what happens in a developed society such as ours is that this actually is still in some sense a reality. I mean, you think about how highly charged any conversation is today about Islam in relationship to America or about, and I'm not trying to equate the two, terrorism. I mean, we just, we j- we've now been, uh, for the better part of my, well, really, actually, when I think about it, the majority, almost the majority of my life, not quite. So for, for 15, 16 years now, we've been in or around this war on terror. Like, we're talking about a war on death anxiety, the fear of death. But in general, like everyday society, I typically don't wake up and think about the 15 ways I could actually lose my life today. But what happens, again, according to, soci- to psychologists, is that this, is this, this anxiety, this realization that I nevertheless could die, they call it neurotic anxiety. 
And it's not just about the loss of my life. It's about the loss of my quality of life. It's about the loss of my well-being. So I'm not necessarily at risk of losing my life, but if I, go to, if I go to my classes and none of my students show up, then what does that say about me? Or if I go to my classes and some of, the other, you know, some of my colleagues are, are you know, saying that I'm teaching all sorts of things that are untrue or that I'm you know, bad at this or whatever, like I, I have this anxiety that there's all sorts of things that could go wrong that would mess with my life. Like what happens if I lose both my jobs? How am I going to take care of my family? What do I do then? And this causes us to prioritize our, uh, I could put it in any number of ways. I'm going to put well-being, or I, I could put, uh, to use this term, self-esteem, our sense of self-worth. And so we find ourselves needing to prioritize my sense of self. Now, if I'm going about my life trying to make myself feel better about me, I'll tell you what I'm not going to be able to do is selflessly love the people who are around me. And so this, this fear that I've got to protect myself leads to this prioritizing of my own well-being and essentially I become a person who is incredibly selfish. Once again, perhaps acting out in terms of violence and greed and those sorts of things. That I think is a psychologically realistic description of what Paul means when he says that uh, sin entered the world through one man and sin brought death because of which all sinned. You, were not, you and I were born into a world that was already governed by this ugly reality, that everybody's looking out for number one, that it's a dog-eat-dog world. And so we're trained from a young age to watch out for me, which, if you think about it, is kind of antithetical to living a life of love. So what happens is I'm born into a world which in every way programs me to live a kind of life that is the opposite of what God intended me to live. That is the impact of Adam's sin. He sinned, brought death into the world, and because of this death, all sinned. He was given this opportunity to image God forth, and the problem was he didn't, and as a result, I now and you now are born into a world that is nothing like what God intended. So that's Paul's basic point with regard to the impact of Adam's sin. It wasn't just something that damaged his relationship to God. It was something that damaged the entire human family and indeed the entire universe. And then Paul wants to just make sure that the Jews in the room aren't getting all cocky because he's talking about Adam, so the Gentiles, I mean, that's about you Gentiles. That's why he says, oh, real quick, let me point this out. Like the law just made things worse. Because the law comes in and says, hey, don't commit adultery. And we think, oh, I hadn't really thought about that, but I guess I could, like, go get somebody else's wife. You know what I mean? Have you ever seen the look on a kid's face when they first hear a rule and think, I could totally do that. That would be kind of fun. You know what I mean? Like, wait a second. So I can have, like, I know I have insurance, but I can have insurance for my insurance for my insurance. Like, I can be that secure. So much for helping that poor person over there. So much for helping that person that doesn't even know what insurance is. Like, I can have insurance for my insurance. Awesome. So whenever we have the law coming in, the rules coming in, they don't actually change the situation because they don't do anything about the root problem. They don't turn me into the kind of person who's capable of loving. They actually just tell me what I can't live up to. So Paul says, listen, here's what the law does. It just magnifies the problem by drawing attention to the things that you've been doing that were wrong. And in some of you, moving you to do more wrong than you were doing before. So Paul's point when he talks about the, the effects of Adam's death 
is once again that because Adam has died, sin has led to death, or Adam has sinned, his sin has led to death, which leads to more sin, and the law just makes the problem worse. But that, of course, takes us to the part that he wants to emphasize, which is the impact of Jesus' death. Paul here speaks about Jesus' death as an act of righteousness and an act of obedience, similar to how we talked about Jesus' death as an act of faithfulness in chapter 3. So let me give you a couple of statements to describe what I think Paul is saying about what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. He says, in effect, actually he says quite literally, Jesus' death brings justification and therefore life. This is precisely what Paul's been arguing at this point, and Paul uh, summarizes this. Look at uh, verse 18, the second half. So one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. So justification means that we're free from condemnation, right? So I no longer have to fear that somebody's going to sentence me to death. And what's more, Paul says, it brings life. Life means that I'm free from death. So what I want you to notice is that what Paul is saying is that Jesus' death on the cross actually takes care of the root of the problem because it justifies you so that the sin that you committed actually no longer defines you and it provides new life for you so that you don't have to actually be as afraid of death as you were. So within this, what Paul does is, is essentially Adam's sin and Jesus' death are contrasted, not just compared. This is why he says in verse 15, the gift is not like the trespass. So he says as he's unpacking this, there's a sense in which Adam's sin and Jesus' death correspond to one another, but more so the two are different. The gift is not like the trespass. Why? Why does Paul say that the two are similar, but that one is infinitely superior in every way? Well, they're similar in this sense alone, that one act leads to a bunch of consequences. That's the similarity. One decision, one event, one action has a lot of results. That's why they're similar. But they're different in this sense. So it's kind of like, let me just give you an analogy. It's kind of like Adam was made um, in Joplin, Missouri. Seems right. And he was told, your mission is to get to New York City. That's, that's what I want you to do. I want you to get to New York City, get to the East Coast. Instead, he ends up in California. Oh, my word, right? Jesus shows up on the scene. And at this point, we're no longer where we started in Joplin, Missouri. We're now all the way over here in California. But Jesus doesn't just get us back to where Adam started. He actually takes us forward to where Adam was designed to go. So let me give you another analogy. Adam is given a bank account and it's at zero. And his job is to make $10,000. Instead, he amasses a debt of $100,000. So Jesus shows up on the scene and we're not where we started at zero. We're way over here at $100,000. But Jesus not only makes up the money that was lost, but actually takes us to $10,000 and way beyond. That's why the two are different. Because Adam was given this blank slate to, to, to live and to become and to grow into what he, God wanted humankind to be. He totally messed it up and created a, just, just this horrible cesspool, right, of, of depravity. Jesus enters into this horrible cesspool of depravity and with this one act of dying for our sins and bringing life to us, he actually not only gets us back to where we were going or back to where we started, but forward to where we were going. 
you understand that what Jesus wants to do is not to take you back to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is not the goal. The Garden of Eden was a place where Adam was put so that he could get to the goal. And Jesus doesn't want to get you back to this point of innocence. He wants to get you to this point where innocence was supposed to take us. And what, what Paul is saying here about Jesus is precisely that. Adam was supposed to reach maturity, but instead he wound up condemned. Jesus started with this man who was condemned, but he hasn't just restored what Adam lost. He's gone even further beyond what Adam was, to what Adam was supposed to become. So I'm kind of saying this in a number of different ways so that hopefully I can give you some time to percolate on it because I want you to understand the concept that he's talking about. Paul is showing that while you can compare Adam's sin and Jesus's death, in the end, there's no real comparison. In the end, you actually have a contrast because the two are radically different. Uh, Put in the words of a scholar with the lab, I think his name is C.K. Barrett, the act of grace does not balance the act of sin. It overbalances it. Or as I like to say it, Adam's sin brought death and strife, but Jesus' death brings grace and life. Jesus came to undo what went wrong when Adam sinned. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that means practically, but let me just pause for a second. Let this kind of soak in. I want to give you a minute to read back over the text, and I'm going to tell you why I think this ultimate... Actually, you know what? Yeah, let me do that. I'll do that first. What I've given you on the end of your handout is you're going to see that it says questions... And then there's one, two, three. I want you to read back through the text, take a minute and write down any questions you have. Now then I want to try to dialogue about them and then I'll uh, end with uh, what I think is ultimately the, uh, the relevant piece of all of this for our lives today. So take a minute, read back through Romans 5, 12 through 21 and uh, tell, me what you, tell me what still doesn't quite make sense.
if you're still reading, go ahead and keep reading. Um, what questions do you have that we can talk about to, uh, to lock in a decent understanding of what's going on in this passage? Yes. Well, thank you. Don't let me filibuster for a minute anyway. Um, he says, if somebody is experiencing deep tragedy, how do you how do you talk to that person about restoring hope? Um, so before I answer your question, one of the things that a question like that reminds me of is the importance of... Um, of kind of studying and believing and meditating on the truth before we hit that. So let's just speak personally for a moment. I'll get to your question, I promise. But um, I know, and what's hard for me about the question is, I think immediately of seasons in my own life when I was undergoing deep, deep tragedy. And there wasn't a whole lot anybody could say. But I, I, I was so grateful at the time and still am today that during times when I wasn't experiencing deep tragedy, I, I very intentionally studied and thought through and meditated on what Scripture says about how to think about times of tragedy. For instance, viewing them from an eternal perspective. Um, that's the big thing. Also, I think the, other, the two critical truths for me are that there is an eternity that will help us understand time. It will help us understand the present moment. And then the second one is, is, is I believe that God doesn't, uh, specifically cause all of the horrible things that happen to us, but is nevertheless capable of redeeming any of them. I had locked those truths in for me personally so that when I hit great tragedy, I, I, I still believed them. Um, so in that case, what I needed, and I didn't like going to church. I mean, going to church was kind of the last place I wanted to be when I was going through some of these things because I didn't want to hear people try but fail to try to make me feel good. You know what I mean? I remember... Um, and I mean, uh, I think most of you probably heard us tell our story. I was specifically thinking um, of, a, of a season in our life when we were trying to have kids and we just kept, kept losing them. Um, people would say to me, I, I, just, we, I just know you're going to have kids. No, you don't. Don't tell me that. Like, you don't. So stop acting like God. That doesn't make me feel better. Like, you're fake feel. And it, it's not fake. And it's what's hard is, like, I can, I can, fe- I can still feel it. Like, it's so hard because I know you're trying to be nice to me, but I don't, want, I, don't want to, I don't want to hear that, you know? So it's hard to find the right words to say. And you feel like whatever you say, you're going to say it poorly. What I appreciated the most were when people um, would just come give me a hug or come sit in my living room. And, and to cry with me, you know, um, or just sit there and say nothing, and, and I didn't have to say anything either. Um, those things were, were, were good. And then really anytime somebody said, I don't even know what to say, I just want you to know I'm with you, and, 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 and we believe in a God who, who somehow is, is, big, is big enough for all of this, you know, so those are the things that I think personally I would say in my moments I've needed. Now, not everybody's me, and, and ultimately we want to say some things. So the three things that I say to people who are suffering and, and how you say this and, 
and and you know how precisely it, it comes out in terms of tone and content depends on the specific situation. But I always say uh, the two two I already told you. Uh, one, I believe that God did not cause this. When God causes evil in the Bible or when God causes suffering, he always makes it very clear to the person that he's the one doing it and that there's a reason why. So it's not that I don't think God can kill babies or whatever, that sounds harsh. But I mean, you think about Solomon or you think about David's son, for first child of Bathsheba, gone. Why? As an act of judgment on their sin. So it's not that God is not allowed to take life or, or do any other number of things. That's not that God is not allowed to send a tornado or whatever. But when he does it in scripture, a prophet of God, a verified prophet of God makes very clear that he's the one doing it and why. So most of the time in our world, this doesn't happen. So I would say, first of all, I don't believe God caused this. But I think that he's big enough to redeem it. And Paul will build out what he says here about hope and eternity in the back half of chapter 8, or in the middle part of chapter 8 rather, and it's one of my favorite portions of scripture because it tells us we have to evaluate life in, the li- life in the light of eternity. So the first thing I say is I don't think God caused this, but I think he's big enough to redeem it. All things work together for the good of those who love him. I think that is true. It's Romans eight twenty eight. Secondly, um, we have to evaluate life in the light of eternity. So I wouldn't say it precisely like that, but I would say we believe that there will be an eternal goodness that doesn't necessarily make this not hurt at all. Doesn't, I'm not expecting this to make you, make you feel good right now, but we believe in an eternity that it will help make sense of this. And the third thing I say is you get to feel whatever you feel. Grief is not predictable. And there's, I suppose, a time to tell a grieving person we, we need to go ahead and get out of the house. We need to go ahead and move forward. But for the most part, when you're grieving, you just need to be allowed to grieve. I don't know what I'm going to feel on any given morning. Sometimes you wake up and you just are sad. Other times you wake up and you're numb. Sometimes you wake up and you, you don't want to think about it. And generally speaking, as long as a person is not locked into denial, I'm fi- I just want to say, like, feel, feel what you feel. If the Psalms have taught me anything, it's that I'm allowed to feel in God's presence the full range of human emotion, including vengeance, anger, disgust, despair, hopelessness, thoughts of suicide. It's all there in the book of Psalms. Now, the point is it's prayed out. It's not just some sort of sitting here thinking about it. No, it's talked about in the context of God. So it's a long answer to your question. Uh, there's never a perfect thing to be said. Um, but after you have demonstrated with your physical presence your support for that person and have said, I'm not going to pretend like I have the, pers- the perfect words, those are the three things I would communicate. So long answer to your question um, but I don't think it's I don't think it's disconnected from Romans. I think it's actually the substance of this hope um, that we're talking about. Good question. Okay, others, other questions. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what he's wanting to say, so the question he's asking is, you know, 12 through 15 says that sin brought death, death spread like a cancer to all, um, but sin was not charged to an account before the law came around. So what precisely is he saying with that? And you had some more texture to your question, uh, but I think that will suffice as a summary. I think what Paul is doing there is he's making sure that nobody thinks He's doing two things. One, he's making sure that nobody thinks they're off the hook. 
So it is true that before there is a law of the land, like nobody can be held account, held to, held legally accountable for doing something that isn't isn't against the law. Nobody can be held legally accountable for breaking the law if the law doesn't exist. But Paul is saying, first of all, note that even during that time between Adam and Moses, death still reigned. People still sinned, even if they didn't know precisely what to call it. So first of all, if you lived in that time, it's not like you're off free. But secondly, he wants to say, but it's not also like the law somehow fixed everything. The law actually... um, helped us understand the nature of our sin. And one of the things that um, is sometimes helpful to keep in mind when reading Romans is some of these words mean technical things. So like transgression means breaking of a law. So when Paul will say before their law there was, before there was the law, there was no transgression, he doesn't mean nobody did anything wrong. It means it's not a breaking of a law, again, because the law wasn't there. Uh, trespass is a different word. Sin is a different word. These have different meanings. So the main thing that I think he's wanting to say here in context is everybody experiences the poison that resulted from Adam's sin. And to give you a preview of what he keeps doing with these weird, because you, have you guys noticed yet that if you haven't yet, I really encourage you to try to uh, occasionally, um, maybe once or twice this semester, um, if you can do it more often, awesome. Just back up and read all of Romans or listen to all of Romans. Maybe you have a long commute or a plane ride. Just plug that thing in your ear listen to the whole thing. If you, it, it, so far, have you noticed that he just, he's going along, going along, going along, drops a reference to the law? <laughs> going along, going along, going along, drops another reference to the law. He's setting us up to understand the purpose of the law, which he'll clarify in chapter 7. And what he'll tell us, I'll go ahead and tell you now and then I'll tell you again, is that the law has a positive function of telling us what, who God is and what he wants from us. And it has a negative function of drawing attention to our sin and in some cases even increasing it. But even the negative function is positive because the whole purpose of Israel was to deal with the sin problem. That's why God called Abraham to deal with the problem of Adam. So the whole purpose of Israel was to deal with the sin problem. And so what God did with the law is he gave it to them so that they would know what was expected of people. But he gave it to them knowing that they're going to break it. And what's worse than a person who hits somebody in the face? A person who hits somebody in the face right after the police officer says, don't hit them in the face. So in a sense, sin is actually at its worst in Israel because they have the law. But Paul will explain that the whole idea here was that God was drawing sin to its very worst in a particular place where he could deal with it. So for instance, let me show you what I mean in this passage. In verse 20, it says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Where was sin at its worst? Well, kind of whenever you put the the Son of God on a cross and killed him. And that actually also happens to be the place where grace was at its best. So I'll try to, to, to flesh that out a little bit when we get to some of Paul's clearer statements. Just know that it's okay at this point, if particularly when you get to the portions where Paul talks about the law, if you're going, okay, I kind of think I understand what you're saying, but I'm also scratching my head a little bit. He kind of, for what, I mean, it's just Paul's way of, of writing. He kind of wants us to. But generally speaking, have I given a, a decent answer to your question? Good question. Yeah. We've got time for maybe a couple others. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. 
Yeah, good question. So I do think that that the plan all along was to sin to Jesus in that God knew that Adam was going to sin. So God wasn't unaware of, 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 you know, what was going to happen. So I think that, and this will actually become, I'm working right now on my sermon for, on Romans nine through 11, like all three chapters in half an hour. It's actually the best way to deal with it though, believe it or not. And the whole, the whole point of chapter 10 is this was the plan all along. This was, this was, it was always about Jesus. Um, so yeah, I didn't repeat your questions, but that was one was, you know, did, did God always intend to send Jesus? Yes. Um, another one, you asked three in there. What was the middle one? What was, what was the ideal life for Adam? Yeah, I think, is that the question, right? Is to look like Jesus. And let me, let me, let me, a quick thing that will, will show you what I mean by this. Um, or at least prove to you that, I, that this, is, this is what scripture teaches. You, re- you remember in Genesis where Adam is created in the image of God or after the image of God? Um, so I'm not speaking technically, but imagine God and then there's this image of God and then Adam was made after that image. Uh, then in Colossians 1.15, Paul says that Jesus is the image of God. And part of what he's saying is, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. But the other part of what he's saying is, if you want to know what humanity was supposed to be like, look at Jesus. Jesus is the first normal human being we've ever seen. So Adam was supposed to look like Jesus, but God, of course, uh, knew all along that there was risk involved in this in creating creatures who are genuinely capable of loving or not. Um, and so, yeah, in some sense, I think the purpose all along was Adam. What had happened if Adam had not sinned? I don't really know how to answer that question. Different theologians have tried. There was a guy around the, the medieval, about around the 11, 12, 1300s that argued that um, the purpose was always for Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to become human, but that um, had Adam never sinned, it wouldn't have been so much a redemptive mission as a fulfilling mission. So if Adam had continued to grow into maturity, that God would still have sent Jesus to incarnate as a human person and it would be this sort of, hey, this is what you all have been becoming. I, that's going beyond what I think we can know. But it's, a, it's a very fascinating question. Yeah, good question. All right, let me go ahead and wrap this up with one final point. I know that, that there's kind of a lot to take in, not only in terms of the text, text itself, but also some of the ideas that I've brought in. Hopefully I have added to clarity rather than added to the confusion. Let me give you the upshot of all of this. I think the point that we need to take away from this is that you and I are free from death. Now that may seem like the strangest, most impractical, irrelevant thing I could say, but I hope that this helps you understand that it's not. The reason why you said those mean things about your boss today, the reason why you couldn't sleep last night because you weren't sure if you had enough money in the bank account, the reason why you're mean to your spouse, even when you don't want to be or even when you want to be both, the reason why, like any time you step outside of God's design for your life, it's ultimately because you think that's actually necessary for you to protect yourself. Self-protection motivates us towards selfishness. And the point of being free from death is that you don't have to be afraid anymore. What's the worst that somebody can do to you? Torture you and kill you. Well, that's what they did to Jesus, and then what happened to him three days later? The secret to a a healthy marriage is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The secret to a healthy employee-employer relationship is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, it is his victory over death, his death on our behalf, and then victory over death and resurrection, 
that frees us from the need to be afraid anymore and therefore frees us to act in the interests of those around us instead of protecting our own interests all the time. So in the coming weeks, Paul will help us reflect on the nature of our freedom going even a step further and then specifically how to actually turn that into an experienced reality. But for now, let's just acknowledge that Adam screwed things up and Jesus more than fixed them. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.